I think that's something that will likely lead to an industrial slowdown in Europe that is not expected yet, if not a recession. Does what's happened in Evergrande, do some of the risks in property expand beyond? Being a contrarian, pretty much every trade that I make is an uncomfortable trade. Hello, an economist with her finger on the inflationary pulse, an Asia credit expert and a contrarian investor whose approach could probably teach us all a thing or two. We've gathered these experts to guide investors like you through everything that's happening in markets at the moment. A real estate reckoning in China, debt ceilings in the US, soaring energy prices in Europe. Will the black swans ever take wing? I'm Richard Edgar and this is Rich Pickings, the Asset Allocation Podcast. Joining me from London are global economist Anna Stubnitska and global equities portfolio manager Dimitri Solomachin. And from Hong Kong, head of fixed income in Asia, Marty Dropkin. Welcome to you all. Hi, Richard. Hi, Richard. Now, Marty, I gather that you are currently on day six of a 21-day quarantine in Hong Kong. Tell me about that. Are you having to do lots of tests? Your, your information is accurate, Richard. Yes, uh, Hong Kong has uh, instituted a 21-day quarantine for people coming from the U.S., where I had a lovely holiday uh, leading into my quarantine. I will be tested 10 times uh, throughout the period while I'm in captivity and then after I leave captivity. So if you add it all up, it'll be 10 COVID tests. So hopefully by that time, I will be guaranteed to not have COVID. And, and we like, I hope so, we like numbers on uh, on this podcast. You you have actually been traveling quite a bit during the um, uh, the pandemic. So how many quarantines have you had to do in that time? So over the last 12 months, this is my fourth quarantine. And I was comparing notes with one of our fund, uh, fund managers on the team. She's done five. And so we're, we're, we're neck and neck. But uh, <laughs> one, one final statistic. Um, how many room service club sandwiches have you had to have in that time? <laughs> we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. Don't answer that. OK. Um, Anna, what about you? Welcome to you. And um, any COVID-related travel stories from you uh, over, over the summer and into autumn? I only traveled once uh, out of the UK, which was last August. And I went to Disneyland Paris. Uh, which was a magical experience, <laughs> including the travel, because there was only one Eurostar a day. There were no delays. Everything was smooth. I had one test in France, one test on my return. I had to show my vaccination proof everywhere in Disneyland. But otherwise, it was really painless. I'm glad to hear that urgent travel um, was smooth and, um, uh, and, and clear. And I'm afraid those tests, they're, uh, they're here to stay, aren't they? Dimitri, what about you? Um, tell me about your travel night nightmares or dreams? For me, it was surprisingly no drama. We've been abroad maybe three or four times since the start of the pandemic and the closest it came to any sort of drama was funny enough on the trip to Cornwall last December. Cornwall? Cornwall, yeah, which mm -hmm. was supposed to be a one-week family break, but when we were there, England reintroduced the lockdown. And for us, it was an option to go back and be stuck in London or remain being stuck there. So we ended up sp spending four weeks there and had a great Christmas. That sounds ideal. Christmas in Cornwall. Lovely. OK, well, thank you very much. Um, that's, um, that's reminded us of the, uh, the circumstances uh, that we're all in. But Anna, let's start with you, for you to give us the uh, macroeconomic view, because lots has happened since uh, we last recorded. And it strikes me that we're at a bit of an inflection point, because the Fed has signalled that it's likely to start winding down its asset 
purchasing program, possibly quite quickly from November. Other central banks may follow. In fact, Norway has already hiked interest rates there. Uh, we've seen stickier inflation than most predicted in lots of parts of the economy. China's markets have been shaken by a significant change in regulation. And the US debt ceiling is getting closer. The list goes on. So how do you and the macro team interpret all of this? I think it is an inflection point, Richard. We are moving uh, from uh, uh, peak growth, peak uh, policy accommodation, peak uh, easy financial conditions into a much more challenging environment. Uh, we believe there, there are a number of headwinds that um, will come um, into focus towards the end of the year. Uh, already our leading, leading indicator is uh, pointing to broad-based slowdown globally across all sectors um, and across all countries. We're seeing that already in um, uh, manufacturing and services PMIs, the preliminary readings for September. And at the same time, as you say, inflation is sticky and uh, we have long argued well, through this year, that inflationary pressures are likely to be much more persistent than markets or policymakers anticipate. And I think it is still the case. It's not priced in fully. And we are seeing a number of factors that will keep inflation high. On, on that point, just to interrupt your, your flow of thought, on inflation, what is it that turns something from a transitory inflationary pressure, and we've seen lots of little ones popping up all over the place, into something that then becomes embedded and, and persistent uh, inflation. What are you looking for there? Well, I guess it's a matter of time. If a, a transitory factor uh, lasts longer than expected, it becomes a more persistent one and it affects uh, inflation expectations. We've done a lot of uh, research looking at the role of inflation expectations in uh, the formation of actual inflation process. And they are very, very important, whether it's market-based uh, or server-based inflation expectations. So, for example, if supply chain disruptions are, in theory, transitory, but they last longer than expected, and people can already see um, those pressures feeding into their prices, eroding their purchasing power. Um, this um, can affect inflation expectations and become self-fulfilling. So that's really one of the transmission mechanisms that we're looking at. Okay, Marty, let me come to you. As this flood of liquidity from central banks begins to dry up, unsurprisingly, perhaps, when uh, we hear from Anna about um, the inflationary um, uh, picture that's, that's developing. What does that mean for the bond market? I, I agree with Anna. I mean, I think we, we are in a bit of a transition phase right now. And you've even seen things pick up over the last couple of days um, with some of the news about changes in the Fed, uh, with some of the news about tapering, with some of the, the activity in China that, that you've just talked about, Richard. And so, you know, I think the bond markets, I would expect volatility, really. Uh, rates still remain relatively low. Uh, if we if we look at historical uh, trends. And so I think we could end up in a period, especially if inflationary expectations, which I agree with, and I don't think, uh, you know, higher persistent inflation is yet priced in. So we could see some weakness in rates over the near term. I think the question is, if we kind of push out towards the medium term, long term uh, time trajectory, there's still a massive amount of debt in the system, and central banks are going to have to manage through that. And so what we'll have to pay attention to is this dynamic of real rates, inflation, and then ultimately what central banks do with their own liquidity injections. The Fed has talked about backing off a little bit with tapering coming later this year. 
we'll see if that lasts and we'll see, you know, the Fed is going to have to be very reactive to trends in the market as well. And what about the US debt ceiling? So this is where Congress is essentially turning off the taps of government spending of um, uh, and stopping President Biden's um, uh, policies being, being rolled out. It's not the first time we've had this. Um, should we be worried this time over others? No, it's not the first time, nor do I think it'll be the last time. So, you know, I, I would expect, you know, the debt ceiling with the amount of debt that's in the system will be a subject of, of conversation for, for years to come. Uh, had we recorded this yesterday, I would have said, you know, look out because nothing was being priced in. Now, yesterday, between yesterday and today, uh, we've seen rates already start to rise. And I think some of that catalyst has been uh, an expectation that, you know, we could be uh, entering in a bit of negotiation around the debt ceiling. Just to explain that yesterday was um, Tuesday, the 28th of, of September. We also had a sell off on, uh, on, on Wall Street as well on equities. But um, Marty, let, let me bring Dimitri into this, um, our, our investor on the, on the panel today. Dimitri, you've got the unenviable task of investing other people's money in all of this. Um, does the inflation outlook worry you because of the impact it will have on, on companies and, uh, and share prices, of course? Yeah, well, to be honest, uh, inflation is probably the single most important thing that worries me at the moment. And I agree with Anna completely that... Uh, it's likely to be uh, higher and for longer. And on top of that, I would say that when we look at official statistics, you know, inflation at around 3-4%, it's massively, massively understated. Basically, it's completely wrong. As a bottom-up investor, obviously, we look at uh, fundamentals, company fundamentals, and if you just go through the PL structure for consumer or for a company, you can see maybe inflation, real inflation running close to double digits. You know, energy, fuel, food, pretty much everything across the board. And the companies are starting to raise prices. Lots of these price increases will fit through into next year. Lots of them will stick. And it's a self-fulfilling circle. As, and as Anna was saying, you know, inflation expectations are picking up. And it's a very dangerous situation. So you have to be very, very careful investing in, in, in this environment. Very, very selective. Keep your, your wits about you. Now, you've explained... You're a bottom-up uh, investor. You look at fundamentals. Um, you invest in equities across the world. You're also a contrarian investor, which doesn't mean that you're awkward uh, to deal with, Dimitri. <laughs> Far from it. But can you explain what is it that uh, you, you, you pick stocks that others um, would rather shun? So how does that work at the moment? Can you give us some examples? So to be honest with you, the idea is very, very simple. Because the market is so efficient, it's very difficult to find something that can differentiate you. And being a contrarian is effectively trying to exploit the market anomaly, right? Looking at things that I disliked. You know, there's bigger, big opportunity for arbitrage, so to say. So um, that's kind of the whole approach. Uh, pretty much every trade that I make is an uncomfortable trade. And basically, I start feeling uncomfortable when my trading pattern becomes more comfortable, if it makes any sense to you. <laughs> right. That's, that's an interesting way of, of putting it. And, and right now, you know, we're at an inflection point. Presumably, that gives you more opportunities than um, in, when there's a, a sort of steady status quo. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, in addition to being contrarian, I'm also a value investor. 
And there's as well no value as an asset class has suffered for very, very long time, maybe last 10 years or so, basically, I think since 2012. That explains why you're uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> mean, that's kind of fine. I'm used to it by now, that's fine. <laughs> but now perhaps things are changing a little bit and uh, some of these sort of nonsensical nosebleed valuations will start to come down. As you can see, I'm very biased, yeah? Yes, So it's, it's called conviction. You've got the conviction. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely, and then maybe we have a little bit of of uh, change of the market environment, which to be honest with you, I think we started to see in the last quarter of 2019, funny enough, even though it feels like long time ago, almost forgotten. But obviously then the whole pattern got very much distorted by the COVID and more QE. And now things are coming back a little bit. So I would be kind of in the value camp, definitely, but still focused pretty much on uh, stock specific uh, special situations. So how would you compare the way that you're investing at the moment uh, against the, uh, the the main benchmarks, for example? In terms of the benchmark comparison, for example, if you look at my geographic exposure today, the fund is approximately uh, 20% overweight the UK equities, which is very, very high for a global fund manager. Just to give you an idea, the UK is only uh, 3% of the global benchmark, the whole market, whilst Apple as a single stock is also about 3% of the global benchmark. So that's kind of, that's the relative scale. On the other hand, I'm almost uh, 50%, 5-0, underweight the US, which is the single biggest contributor to the benchmark. It's approximately 60%. So you can see I'm very kind of anti-momentum and pro-value. And in terms of maybe more specific stock exposure without giving individual names, there are still some of the COVID loser companies, so to speak, which inherently underline a very, very good business as fundamental, and some of them are even getting better. But because they lost so much of the top line last year, we don't quite see it yet. So if, as things recover slowly, this will come back and uh, margins and returns and cash flows will surprise to the upside. So it still remains quite a significant part of the portfolio at, at, at present. Anna, we're all watching what's going on like hawks or is it like doves no um, more like hawks nowadays what should we expect from the fed in the coming months is it going to focus on growth uh, and continue to offer support is it looking at unemployment which is improving or will it be guided by inflation which we've already discussed is much higher than normal and they'll start to put the uh, the brakes on what do you think as you mentioned, Richard, as we know, uh, in the September meeting, um, the Fed uh, pre-announced uh, tapering uh, and uh, the tone was quite hawkish um, based on their confidence um, around the US economy, uh, progress on inflation, of course, uh, but also some progress on the labor market. Now, I think it makes sense in the context of the domestic economy at this point in time. But I think as we move forward and those uh, risks intensify that I talked about, um, we see further slowdown uh, and I think deeper than expected slowdown, not just in the US, but globally and particularly the China risk um, is, I think, very, very serious. It will start having uh, a real impact on the rest of the economy 
and those spillovers will become more obvious. And so the Fed, I think, um, will have to become less hawkish uh, as we move through next year. Um, this year is not the time for this year, but I think we'll start seeing um, the turn sometime next year as those risks uh, become more obvious. And you've hinted at this already, but what do you think um, markets, what, what could investors get wrong as policy shifts? Well, I think at this point in time, uh, the markets have not connected the dots between the hawkish shift by central banks, uh, the Fed and the BOE, and Norges Bank, as you mentioned, um, and the slowdown in China. Um, the uh, policy, regulatory, monetary, fiscal uh, tightening in China, well, we'll talk about it in a minute, but I think it's really serious. And as we know, the Fed does not operate in isolation, even though they want to believe it. <laughs> uh, but the global risks are there and they will put a break on what they're planning to do on their policy normalization. And so I think this is something that markets are not uh, pricing in um, and in addition the energy crisis in Europe I think is also really serious um, I think that's something that will likely lead to uh, an industrial slowdown in Europe that is not expected yet if not a recession as we move into winter um, and of course, uh, as we look at uh, carbon prices and everything related to net zero transition, um, this is moving really fast. And actually, it's introducing much more volatility into the markets and, and the uh, economies themselves. And so I think all this um, will present challenges as, as we move into next year. Challenges, that's, that's a polite way of putting it. Let me ask Dimitri and Marty. Um, um, as you watch this, do you have faith in the Fed and other central banks, as, as Anna was um, was setting out, to um, to, to walk this tightrope correctly? Dimitri, what, what do you think? So my views would be probably quite extreme, but I would say um, the Fed has created an unbelievable asset bubble. And as an equity investor, I can see it manifest in many places. You know, you talk about... Uh, you know, margin debt in the system, participation of retail investors in derivatives trading, the meme stocks, the NFTs. Did you know we now have got probably about 12,000 cryptocurrencies, something like that, market cap of trillions. So I think it's very unlikely that this is going to go well. For longer it goes, uh, you know, the longer it goes, the more painful it's going to be when it unwinds. Well, yeah. Mm, sobering. And, and Marty, do you chime with, uh, with Anna and Dimitri? Well, well, I do, but I've come from a different perspective. So if you flip over to the side of the world that I'm in right now. In Asia. I mean, I think China recognizes this. I mean, there's clearly been a, a debt-fueled growth over the years, and I'm sure we'll talk about property in a minute. Um, China has recognized that that's not sustainable. It has also recognized that it wants to move towards a more sustainable economy. And I think picking up on what both Anna and Dimitri just highlighted, you know, the implications of that across the world as China takes its foot off the gas, so to speak, tries to reduce a little bit of leverage in the system, uh, shifts towards a more domestically driven economy. I'm not sure the rest of the world has sort of caught up with the implications of that. And I think that's what Anna in particular was sort of highlighting. Um, that could be very positive for China over the long term, whether that has ripple effects in other markets, including the U.S. over the long term. I think is a, is a topic that, that is yet to be priced into the market. 
What, what about bringing the time uh, that we're looking at a little bit closer to now? Um, what's going to be the impact of the, these various changes on China, including the renminbi? What, what do you think is happening there? Yeah, I mean, look, the renminbi has been remarkably strong over the last couple of years. It's, it's you know, hovering around six and a half to the dollar as we as we speak. I would expect and, and you know, it's a confluence of kind of what happens with rates. Rates could go tighter in China. I think they're going to continue to look at policies to uh, perhaps encourage a little bit more borrowing in a managed way. That might have some negative implications on the renminbi for the short term. But I think the renminbi is likely to remain strong. I mean, inbound investment in China, I think, will continue. And that's going to create a nice sort of counterbalance effect to anything that the Chinese government and the PBOC does to, to reduce rates. Okay, so some stability um, from uh, from outside, perhaps. And you've already alluded to this property, and um, Evergrande is the name that's been in the headlines um, for the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's it's certainly been in the news for much longer than that. Um, how worried are you by how, by how this has exploded? I mean, it's sort of you know it's it's reached cut through across across markets now, but it's it has been a a long standing problem. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it will be a fairly contained topic. Contained within China, you mean? Contained within China and contained more broadly. So I'll expand a little bit. The bonds are now, we're trading at par and are now trading in the low to mid 20s. So we're already pricing in an expected restructuring of Evergrande. We and, and other firms are doing a lot of work in looking at the property sector. And I think the Chinese government has done a good job of providing the regulatory environment where there's three red lines. Property companies have to uh, achieve certain goals in order to issue debt. I think a lot of that, th- those regulations have been brought into effect because China has recognized uh, you know, the debt is, is growing a little bit too much and there's been a little bit too much speculation on property prices. You know, I think the other question, Richard, is, well, but what about the banking sector and, and does what's happened in Evergrande, does some of the risks in property expand beyond? And that's also fairly contained. If you look at um, exposure from core banks, uh, it's actually pretty manageable. So it's not the Lehman moment that, uh, or at least I don't think it's the Lehman moment that some in uh, ha- have speculated it would be, because I don't think it's as pervasive of a crisis extending through through the through the financial sector as 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 you know as we've seen in the past. And yet, um, Anna, coming to you, property generates over a quarter of economic activity in in China. So I mean, it is incredibly important, and that is what has attracted attention from from authorities. And it's one of the three mountains um, that they've announced they want to uh, they want to level. I suppose they want to sort out three major areas. Can you explain a little bit more about that and um, you know, where we expect that to go from here? They're trying to move, um, as they say, towards uh, common prosperity. And the three mountains you're referring to um, are education, healthcare and property. Um, and as you say, uh, property is uh, exceptionally important uh, for growth in China. Um, and that's why, as, as Marty says, even though Evergrande might be not a systemic risk, more of an isolated event, because uh, uh, it's part of the sector that's so important, further risk can al- arise, uh, perhaps uh, with, the, uh, with other property developers, uh, and the spillovers can be really powerful going into the real economy. And so I, I actually think that 
it's it's not the uh, sort of the evergreen issue per se right now. It's about the government trying to lift, if not completely remove, the implicit government guarantee that has been there for years. And so when you don't have the implicit government guarantee saying that the government will bail out uh, any company that goes into trouble, I mean, that creates a different market environment, a different investor backdrop from what it used to be. So I think it's it's a very, very delicate balance. And even though, as we say, as we said, for growth, uh, having a more sustainable development more equal, you know, less inequality is good for uh, growth more generally and for population in the medium term. I think managing that together uh, with trying to enforce some kind of market discipline and balancing that with uh, uh, preventing systemic risks from emerging is really difficult. So, so big picture. I mean, the, the authorities are trying to introduce stability. That's generally generally a good thing. Marty, I could see you nodding as Anna was talking about the the backstop being removed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Anna's absolutely right. China is trying to institute a more well functioning financial market, and so the fact that the government hasn't stepped in to immediately rescue Evergrande is a positive step in my mind, uh, because what it shows is that you know companies can default. And, and the whole topic of moral hazard, which is being very widely discussed around Evergrande itself, shows that you know, the, the, it's an indication that the Chinese government will let companies go um, and, and will let them go into default. That's a positive step, a painful one, and will create volatility, uh, I think, over the next uh, two or three quarters, as Anna just highlighted. But long term, it's a positive step. Now, Dimitri, um, you're quite well invested in China. How do you interpret all of this? So I think it's very good news that someone is finally trying to address the grand problem. Because, Richard, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the problem has been with us probably for the last seven, eight, maybe even 10 years. It needs to happen at some point. So Evergrande now has got approximately 300 billion of uh, total liabilities, of which 100 billion is uh, US dollars financial debt and another 200 billion of other sort of outstanding commitments. Lots of their business practices have been completely unsustainable. You know, you have a situation when um, they borrow a lot of money and uh, get customer prepayments, but pay their suppliers a lot, a lot later. And that would really need to stop. Very aggressive participation in land auctions, for example, all sorts of practices. Investment in non-core ventures such as electric vehicles, even football clubs. Really? I didn't know that. That sounds that sounds fun, um, if not perhaps uh, sensible. Yeah, and at the same time paying themselves basically very, very healthy dividends uh, out of the borrowed funds. So if this stops and if this problem can be contained and the rest of the sector infest, I think it's very positive on a two to three year view because you remove one very rational competitor from the market and the whole system becomes a better quality, stable. Uh, there are risks involved, for sure, because of the size of the unwind that is required. But I agree with Marty, this is definitely not the Lehman moment. And being contrarian, I have actually been increasing my exposure to China on that. 
I expect nothing less after our conversation today. But um, we're going to come back to this. Um, but I think now is perhaps a good opportunity to hear a short clip from Fidelity's Global Chief Investment Officer, Andrew McCaffrey. Um, I had a conversation with him uh, a little while ago, a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him about the regulatory upheavals in China that are going on at the moment, what they might mean when considering the country as a standalone allocation. Here's what he had to say. We've discussed uh, many times over recent months of the sometimes the lack of um, maybe understanding of the China policy towards this both domestic resilience and long term economic um, development. And I think that what we've been seeing more recently is is again this um, desire to play to those um, uh, end goals. And so I would look at that as being uh, you know, very challenging in the short term, but very constructive for the medium term and longer term, because it means that they're building in the sustainability of um, how they can approach you know, developing growth, having within society uh, that level of maybe a little bit more, um, uh, you know, the middle class development continuing, um, taking all of the income per capita uh, up across the, the board. Now, how that feeds... Um, uh, you know, back into to looking at his allocations, I think it's a very important part because I do think that you need to look at China uh, separately. It should be considered in its own right and it will be very influential, not just thinking in a benchmark sense, but actually in a real economic and science of um, market uh, um, perspective. And though that would be, you know, a debt consideration, it would be uh, from an equity consideration. And I think, again, it plays back into the currency and the fact that you have a very different policy setting over time that may become more apparent as well uh, in this process. That's the global CIO Andrew McCaffrey speaking there a couple of weeks ago. You can hear the full interview published on the Rich Pickings podcast channel. Dimitri, the first part of that um, clip, despite being a contrarian investor, you were absolutely in chime with the CIO. Short-term pain, long-term, this is you know a, a good readjustment for the Chinese um, economy. So how do you allocate? What, you're saying you're, you're, you're well invested there and you're actually increasing at the moment. So Evergrande is not really the uh, first bit of bad news about China. If you think about it, you know, rewind a few years back, uh, there was a lot of noise around the China-US tensions, the trade wars, the geopolitics. Then we also had the round of very heavy regulations towards the tech companies. And now you have Evergrande and the whole real estate issue. So prior to the technology sector sell-off in China, there was a very clear dichotomy uh, in terms of the valuations between the old China economy, traditional economy, real estate, industrial, cyclicals, energy names uh, being very cheap. And then the new economy, technology-driven names, maybe consumer names, uh, being very, very expensive. So obviously, as a contrarian, my location was predominantly in the old economy space, where, you know, doing bottom-up uh, stock picking, you could come up with a lot of uh, very interesting value ideas. Now, as we went through the summer over the last few months, uh, technology sector lost a lot of this valuation premium. Uh, because of regulations. And uh, some of the issues, some of the headwinds are real, but things got sold off very heavily across the board, and you can get quite interesting opportunities in the mid-cap space, in the new economy areas as well. And this is what I've been buying incrementally over the last maybe couple of months or so. And now China, as it stands, is approximately 9-10% overweight in my portfolio, 
having been marginal overweight maybe two, three quarters ago. So a, a, a big change there. And Marty, you're closest to, to the action, um, even in your splendid isolation of quarantine. I imagine you're getting queries from, uh, from, from clients. And what's your advice to them on the, on the fixed income side? So there are a lot of queries coming in. And I think just, just as Dimitri highlighted, there's been a series of news items and policy actions that the Chinese government has taken. I think some of those are scaring investors a little bit who don't understand China as well. And the timing is quite interesting because I think a lot of investors outside of the region were just starting to get comfortable with investing in China. It was included in global indices and and fixed income. Uh, Some of the big consultants were starting to recommend big allocations to China in, in equities. And so this has scared everybody a little bit. So I think investors are perhaps going to take a pause, but I completely agree with Dimitri. I mean, when you look at the longer term implications of what China's doing, there's some real opportunities. If we look in the high yield space, I mean, a lot has to do with Evergrande. Spreads and yields have increased quite a bit. We're going to see opportunities in that space uh, that don't come along very often. And so I think for those investors that can handle the risk and can kind of look out towards the medium term, there will be some really good opportunities. And Anna, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, th- this sounds like quite a profound shift in, in attitudes and policy and shaping the economy. Does it change the direction of China's economy as, uh, as we see this, this, this policy begin to um, trickle down? Um, direction in terms of, um, let's say, uh, level of growth, uh, for sure, it means lower growth, uh, I mean, growth at these levels that you know we've seen over the past uh, uh, couple of decades is not sustainable anyway. So uh, growth is going to be lower from here. But the composition of growth, yes, it's going to be different, uh, um, more uh, driven by consumption and less by investment and exports. You know, that's their policy they've been trying to achieve for a while. Um, and what the what is happening today um, uh, is, uh, you know, one of the attempts to move to that more sustainable level of growth. So lower, but more sustainable. And what does that mean for the rest of Asia? Because China is such a um, an engine of growth, not not just domestically, but um, internationally as well. Some uh, um, Asian countries can benefit from it because um, some of the um, manufacturing uh, facilities uh, will continue to be relocated uh, uh, to other countries uh, where uh, labor potentially is cheaper. Um, so it means... Uh, it will lead to quite a big shift and restructuring of global supply chains uh, because China is, is not going to be uh, the producer uh, of uh, of the world in terms of what it used to produce. It's, it's going to be you know, how, uh, higher uh, value add in the chain um, and also uh, much more consumption driven. And Marty, does that mean that those investors who've taken fright at the moment, you're seeing flows go elsewhere in in Asia? What's attracting that money? I mean, marginally, I think what it means is that, uh, and and there's another dynamic here, which is uh, particularly in the debt markets, China is encouraging companies to start to shift debt issuance back to an onshore universe, whereas historically, uh, a lot of Chinese companies were tapping dollar bonds because the Chinese bond market wasn't developed enough. And so, uh, and that's shifting now. So a lot of companies are, are, are starting to issue more in China. 
So you you, you end up with a little bit of a, a scarcity value of that offshore debt, but you also end up with a higher contribution uh, to indices and benchmarks from other countries. Um, and so I, I think there's a bit of a technical factor which will help the companies from countries outside of China, but also highlighting some of the issues, some of the topics that Anna raised, where you know a country like India, which is starting to increase its uh, investment in renewables, um, there are follow-on implications, and there will be other areas that investors will now probably look at a little bit more aggressively, um, particularly as they move towards a more sustainable investing approach. What about you, Dimitri? Um, do any of those uh, themes that Marty was just talking about catch your eye as well around sustainability and um, how that will uh, will develop? Yes, absolutely. The uh, entire area, the topic of the energy transition and the climate change, that's very, very, very important. And what's interesting to understand, again, just uh, being a little bit contrarian here, we need to realize that the whole process is not going to end within, you know, several years. It will be a generational change, probably 40, 50 years before energy mix really changes. And when making investment decisions, we need to take this uh, into account. So it's fine to invest a lot into renewables, but it's also very important not to forget about sort of the legacy infrastructure that we have today, because it will remain with us for probably for the rest of our lives. And maybe in some cases, it's a lot more important to make it a lot better and more efficient before we actually transition onto something else or to do the, b- both the things together. What you see today, for example, in the global energy markets, which started with natural gas and now probably spilling over to oil, is a little bit the result of what we are talking about. As uh, the world is recovering after the pandemic, it becomes very apparent that perhaps we have underinvested into the traditional infrastructure, traditional commodity space for the last six to seven years. So uh, we didn't see much of it previously because of the COVID-related demand drop. But now as things recover, I think it will become more and more apparent. And all of us will get hit with <laughs> with very significant increase in fuel bills next year, petrol prices going up. And uh, I think a lot of it is unfortunately structural. Contrarian to the last, because we have reached the end of the main part of this um, podcast. But um We don't just come to a sudden halt because it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Anna, to you first of all. I'll go for carbon prices to the extent that carbon can be traded um, in Europe uh, or elsewhere. Um, I mentioned uh, net zero transition and I think for... Uh, the world to to achieve a net zero uh, net zero by 2050 or by any date in the future, we need to see much much higher um, uh, carbon prices from here, much higher. So the only way is up for carbon prices. How would you access them? Well, one way to um, access that story would be uh, via exposure to uh, to companies uh, that are developing um, carbon capture technologies. Carbon capture. Because again, this is the only way for the world to transition by 2050 to raise carbon prices uh, and to have scalable and effective carbon capture removal. Okay, and your hot potato? Um, well, I'm going to go into currencies, um, and I would say the euro against the dollar. I think the ECB uh, is is uh, very far behind other central banks, uh, well, particularly the Fed, but also potentially emerging market central banks. And I, I think the euro, uh, well, versus the dollar specifically, um, uh, will be weaker from here. 
Okay, Marty, your hot cakes and hot potatoes. So I, I'm going to stick with the themes that we've been discussing, Richard. I think China rates is a very interesting place right now. If you look at the 10-year China government bond versus, versus U.S. treasuries, um, you're still picking up about 135 basis points, so uh, you know 1.3 percentage points, um, which is slightly tighter than where it was, say, six months ago, but still a good opportunity and has traded in historically as tight as almost flat. So I think China rates, for a number of reasons, I think the government will continue to reduce, will, will attempt to reduce rates as an interesting place. So what's burning your fingers? What do you need to drop? So hot potato, I'm going to go with U.S. investment-grade corporate bonds. We are at spread tights that we've never seen before, picking up on some of the topics that we've already discussed about the way some of the implications are, are going to impact the U.S. economy. I, I, I would stay away from U.S. Uh, investment-grade corporate bonds. Mm -hmm. Run for the hills, run for the mountains, perhaps, um, uh, to go back to our earlier theme. Okay, and Dimitri, finally coming to you, your hot cakes and your hot potatoes, please. The hot cakes, I would be looking now at a commercial aerospace value chain. Uh, there are some interesting company-specific stories, as well as a play on the overall travel recovery. And the other interesting area would be the global agriculture chain. Given the rise in the soft commodity prices and everything else that follows, there are some good opportunities there today. And in terms of hot potatoes, I would stay away from very overvalued, high-growth, loss-making uh, U.S. companies that make no money, will never make any money, which includes uh, some recent IPOs as well as uh, SPACs. I mean, that sounds very sensible advice, um, uh, but not everybody seems to be listening to you at the moment, do they here, Dimitri? But um, thank you very much indeed. That's given us a, um, a, a very good steer. US not coming out of this very well um, at the end of this Rich Pickings. Um, but you can hear more on this and other investment topics on either of our award-winning Rich Pickings or Fidelity Answers podcast. Just search for those titles in your podcast app. And you can read more from our contributors at fidelityinternational.com. Thank you to my guests, Anna Stubnitska, Marty Dropkin, and Dimitri Solomachin, and also to Andrew McCaffrey. The producer today is Seb Morton-Clark with technical production by Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.